This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Well, there's an old saying that's been sort of rattling around in my brain this week. It's this, nothing lasts forever. There are scores of books with that title or with that subtitle, and the same goes with movies. The number of songs with that title is just too many to count. When I was in seminary, I actually read a book with a different title, but in a way it made the same point. It was titled, Things Fall Apart. Both statements <laughs> sound just so pessimistic. Nothing lasts forever, things fall apart. But the reality is, the statements really ring true. When scientists talk about this, they actually have a single word for it, and it's our word of the week. We're getting started with that early this week. The word of the week is entropy. Entropy, which is the second law of thermodynamics, is defined as a gradual decline into disorder. In other words, over time, things fall apart. Nothing lasts forever. Eventually, it'll quit or break. This is a law of life. I mean, think about all the things in your day-to-day life experience uh, that have entropy involved. When you order a hot coffee or hot drink, if you don't drink it, eventually it'll get cold. Entropy. When you put new batteries in something, eventually the juice will run out. Entropy. When you fill your car up with gas, eventually it's going to return to empty. When you toss a rock into the water and it creates ripples, eventually the ripples will flatten out. Entropy. A gradual decline into disorder. Things fall apart. Nothing lasts forever. We've just started the new year and millions of people, my family included, set some goals for the days ahead. But as we all know, for many, the resolutions just don't stick. Within days they end, they fall apart. Plans fall apart, goals fall apart, hopes fall apart, people fall apart, entropy. But here's the thing, humans are created in God's image and likeness. And guess what? God doesn't fall apart. Did you catch that? God doesn't fall apart. And we're created in his image and likeness. And so there's a tension, isn't there? And it's a tension that we all experience, perhaps without even knowing it. We grow old. Our bodies decline. Our health declines. Our senses decline. We decline. But God doesn't. And so if we're made in his image and likeness, why do we decline when He doesn't. Perhaps to remind us that although we're made in his image and likeness, we're not him. But here's the thing. While we can't avoid entropy falling apart, I do think that God has created us in such a way that we are hardwired to resist entropy. We are hardwired to push back against it. We're hardwired as people made in God's image and likeness to strive against entropy. God, after all, is described in Scripture as renewing all things, or making all new things, or making all things new. 
But I think this principle of entropy also occurs on a spiritual level, yeah? We can, as individuals, succumb to spiritual decline. Some even seem to welcome it. We start strong but end broken. We start more mature than we end up. The same goes for congregations. We can make ourselves victims as congregations of spiritual decline. We grow lax. We grow lazy. We fail to keep watch and to walk in the light. Spiritual entropy, a gradual spiritual decline into disorder. And as I thought about that this week, something hit me. And I want you to think about this with me. As Christians, many times we have a fear of big sins. Maybe it's one or more of the seven deadly sins. But the idea of big sins lurks around, and it can sort of grab our attention and maintain it. We can be so fixated on not doing big sins that in the midst of that, we find ourselves drifting. Daily drift. Before we know it, it's little things that have carried us away. You know, some time ago, I was trying to do some wave photography at Makapu, and the undertow there can be quite strong. I had started in a very specific area trying to photograph some shore break, and before I knew it, the undercurrent was sucking me out and, and pulling me toward the rocks, and it was, it was kind of frightening. Right? I tried my best to stay calm and try to just keep swimming, and eventually I made it in okay, but what I realized is that without even realizing it, I'd been drifting. I was so focused on the big waves, I was so focused on getting photos, that I was caught off guard by the undertow. I drifted. It's a decent analogy for our spiritual lives. We can get so focused on big sins that we fail to realize the little ones causing daily drift. And if we ignore the drift long enough, we'll find ourselves in a world of hurt. Or I could put it this way. If we're not being intentional about our spiritual growth, we'll drift. Intentional intentionality, intentional living. We'll be using those words a lot this year. Intentional living will help us guard against drift. And when I say intentional living, I mean living on purpose with purpose. And so I want to throw a question your way. Do you have the courage to live intentionally? Or here's a follow-up. Do you have the courage to live intentionally, even if it means change? You see, intention isn't just about doing. Intentional living is about having purpose to what you're doing. It's doing everything with purpose. In 1910, in Paris, Theodore Roosevelt delivered a famous speech, and I want to share part of it with you now and part later. He once said this. He said, let us try to level up, but let us beware of the evil of leveling down. There's no more unhealthy being, no person less worthy of respect than one who either really holds or feigns to hold an attitude of sneering disbelief toward all that is great and lofty, a cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself never tries to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities. All these are marks not of superiority, but of weakness. 
Zig Ziglar, talking about learning, once put it this way, if you're not willing to learn, no one can help you. If you're determined to learn, no one can stop you. You see, it's all about intention. Without intention, we drift. That, in fact, is our bottom line this week. Without intention, we drift. And as we approach our focal text for today, I want to encourage you to keep that in mind. We're going to pick up at Genesis 35, where we encounter Jacob, whom God catches, I think, in the midst of some drift. So it begins this way. Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there. Make there an altar to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Now, this may seem like a rather flat verse to you, or a couple of verses, but not so fast. Actually, it's just one verse, but not so fast, right? It's not that flat. Look at how it starts. Did you notice this? God said to Jacob, you remember that in Genesis 34, God doesn't speak at all. Amid the Dina fiasco, not a peep from God. Amid the fiasco of Simeon and Levi slaughtering the Shechemites, plundering their town and taking their women and children, nothing. But God speaks here. And so I have to wonder what his tone was when he spoke, finally. If I were a betting man, I'd have to say something like annoyed, angry, exasperated. Here's another thing. We have to keep this uh, in mind, right? this storyline that this falls into. We need to look back to Genesis 28, particularly verses 20 through 22, to kind of get our bearings. So let's do that. It says this, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I uh, come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I've set up for a pillar shall be God's house. So remember, Jacob had fled from his home and family in the promised land after deceiving his brother Esau. On his flight to Uncle Laban's house in Padan Aram, he stopped in Luz, or Luz, where he had an encounter with God. And he set up an altar and he called the place, not Luz, but uh, Bait El, or Bethel, meaning house of God. And there he promised that if God provided for him, we just read it, he'd return to the promised land again someday. So we're in the thick of that part of the story where he's supposed to be making good on returning home, fulfilling that promise. So you fast forward from Genesis 28 to Genesis 31, and in Genesis 31, 33, we read this. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I'll be with you. So Jacob was still in Padan Aram here. Jacob didn't take the initiative to return. God had to remind him. But here's part of the problem. As we saw last week, Jacob didn't return. He stopped shy. He stopped in Shechem. And what happened when he stopped shy? Do you, you know? You remember? What happened when he didn't follow through? That nightmarish event with Dina, and then his sons engaging in murder and pillaging. And not only does Jacob stop shy, he sets up an altar in the wrong place. God didn't tell him to go to Shechem or to stop in Shechem or to do anything there. Jacob placed his own will over God's. Or let me say it this way. Jacob put his own intentions over God's 
intentions. And I want to suggest to you that there's a great spiritual truth here. If and when we put our intentions over God's, we put ourselves and those around us in danger. And so when I'm talking about intentional living and living with purpose, on purpose, I'm not talking about my purpose or your purpose, but God's purpose. God's purpose. Each of us can come up with things that might seem to give our lives purpose, but the wise person knows that true purpose is found in doing God's will, fulfilling God's purpose. And when we stop short, when we interrupt that, when we build where we shouldn't, when we go where we shouldn't, try to force things when we shouldn't, and so on, we can expect hardship. And so I imagine God speaking to Jacob, much like I might have to speak to one of my children, right? The first time, hey, take out the garbage. The fourth time, last time, take out the garbage now, right? A tone of exasperation and sternness, perhaps. And so we're not starting out on a great note here. God's frustrated and he reminds Jacob of his past. And from here on out in this chapter, difficulties everywhere, like most of Genesis. In fact, what we're going to see in the verses that follow is essentially four deaths, four burials, four funerals. It's as if as soon as Jacob finds his way back to the correct path home, he's slated with the role of becoming undertaker. So let's keep reading. Verse 2, Then Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves change your garments. Let's arise and go up to Bethel. I'll make there an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me on the way that I went. They gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak which was by Shechem. So after what seems to be a stern warning from God, Jacob shapes up a little bit. He orders all of the idols or foreign gods to be buried. Perhaps the idols were from Lot's house, some of them. You remember Rachel, as we know, had been carrying a fertility idol. Perhaps some of them were from the Shechemite homes that they had just raided in the previous chapter. But either way, they're present and they need to be done away with. And not just that, the people with the idols are called on to purify themselves, part of which entails changing their garments. You know, changing clothes is a theme throughout Scripture. This is one of the earliest instances of it. It's a ritual and symbolic act, much like baptism, of putting on a new self. As we saw repeatedly in Revelation, those who overcome by not selling God out are given new clothes by God, new garments, white clothes, wedding clothes. It's an outward representation of an inward change and purification. And we see here that with the change of clothes, Jacob's attitude changes. His name had previously been changed, and here the clothes go with it. He remembers what God did for him and when he called on him. And so in an act of allegiance, he orders the idols, the foreign gods, to be put to death. They're buried in Shechem, perhaps where they belong. This, by the way, is the same site in Genesis 12, where uh, Abraham, by the way, uh, first builds an altar, I think. It's, it's sort of looking to the past. And I want to make this point, too. After all this crap, don't you find it amazing that God is still speaking to Jacob at all? I mean, that's super... Humbling when you think about it. I mean, after how Jacob has treated his kids, his wives, his enemies, his neighbors, his God, God still pursues him. God still speaks to him. 
It's a great reminder that none of us is beyond the reach of God. You may have screwed up royally. You may have embarrassed yourself, your spouse, your family, your kids, your church, your co-workers. You may have done something awful, but you're not beyond God's reach. If there's room in God's grace for Jacob, there's room for you and me and everyone else. As the praise song says, if his grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. No one is beyond God's reach. I mean, don't ever feel like your past or your present deems you unreachable by God. God's love is vast and deep, and there's more than enough to go around for everyone many times over. All right, let's keep that. Let's keep reading. Verse 5, they traveled in terror of God, was on the cities that were around them, and they didn't pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Baithel or Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel. Interesting, because there God was revealed to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak, and its name was called Alan Bakuth. I mean, what a crazy line in verse 5. Did you catch that? As Jacob finally picked up and moved, the surrounding cities kept their distance. Perhaps they wanted revenge on Jacob's family for what they did to the Shechemites. Perhaps they were on the defensive thinking that, man, if Jacob and his family pass through here, through our city, then maybe their crew will try to do the same thing to us as they did to the people in Shechem. I, I don't know. But clearly the fear of God is at work here. And nobody touches Jacob or his family. So they return to Luz or Bethel, finally in the promised land. And just before, or sorry, and just as before, he built an altar. He actually renames it El Bethel. In Hebrew, it means something like, God is God of this house. It's really emphasizing God. And of course, we're reminded of Jacob's past again, his flight from Esau, which was mentioned above. You see, this, this past isn't erased. It's there as a memory, something to learn from. You know, there's an old saying that says, what we learn from history is that we've failed to learn from history. Ooh, it's very true. I mean, look what happens next. We get the next burial. This time it's Deborah, Rebecca's nurse. And by the way, we haven't heard about Rebecca since more than like 20 years ago in the story, right? Rebecca, of course, is Isaac's um, wife. And had she, you know, maybe started traveling with Jacob after Jacob wrestled Isaac or Esau at the Jabbok River? Did they reunite there? Had Rebecca and her nurse Deborah been traveling with Esau, and then they switched over and started traveling with Jacob after those events? I mean, it would kind of seem so. Otherwise, why would Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, be mentioned? By the way, don't get Rebecca, Jacob's mom, confused with Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. They both are our names. So Rebecca, Jacob's mom, Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, okay? Anyhow, just as in Shechem, like, uh, like the idols, Deborah was buried under a tree too. But she's buried just below Bethel, or around Bethel. And it's given the name Alon Bakuth, which means weeping tree. Evidently, a lot of people were weeping around the tree, but it kind of brings to mind a weeping willow. 
Um, I think we should also note, too, that while there's a memorial for Deborah's burial, it stands in stark contrast to the idols that were buried. There was no memorial for them. They were as good as dead. Here's something else I want to point out. Jacob, the first time at Bethel, had an encounter with God. We just read about that. After finally obeying and moving, this time he arrives at Bethel yet again and has another encounter with God. So Bethel is this place of encounter with God for Jacob. And immediately after this sort of mountaintop experience of encountering God the second time, boom, disaster strikes. Death hits. I mean, isn't that the way things seem to go? It's like for every great experience we have in life, there has to be one or more that undermines it. As soon as something good happens, we, we can't just relish the moment, right? Something else happens and, and encroaches upon. I know that sounds pessimistic, but my guess is that many of you can relate. But here's the great thing, the good news. Jacob persists. And the same has to go for us. When our good experiences are offset by the bad, we must persist in our trust of God. Or wait for it, we must be intentional in trusting God. Even when it hits the fan, we must be intentional. We must live with purpose on purpose. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be Jacob anymore, but your name will be Israel. He called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations will be from you, and kings will come out of your body. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I'll give it to you, and to your offspring after you, I'll give the land. And God went up from him in the place where he spoke with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he spoke with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Okay. If we were in person right now, I'd ask you this question. Um, who knows what Padan Aram essentially means or refers to? You, as good scripture scholars, would respond, land of deceit or place of deceit. And after deceiving Esau, Jacob fled to the land of deceit where Uncle Laban lived and he stayed there 20 years, Padan Aram. He was repeatedly deceived there too. Do you see this incredible verse? Once Jacob has finally left the land of deceit behind, God blesses him. There's a second take with the name change. He's renamed Israel once again, second try. You see, when we submit to God, when we yield our wills to His, when we're obedient, man, God can transform us and bless us. God speaks to Jacob again, and this time it's not an exasperation. 
It must be in a much kinder tone. God reaffirms his own identity, as well as the promise we encountered way back in Genesis 1, the thing Abraham was obsessed with, you remember. Be fruitful and multiply. The family motto reemerges here, and Jacob, like Abraham, will see nations descend from his line. Being fruitful and multiplying, you remember, can be explained in this way, that in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, we're told that we're made as humans in God's image and likeness. We bear his glory. And so when we are fruitful and multiply, we populate the land with God's image and likeness, his glory. We literally fill the earth with his glory, his image and likeness. And once again, Jacob sets up a pillar in the same place as before, and he offers some offerings. And just as God renamed Jacob, Jacob again renames the place Bethel. It's unclear why uh, it isn't El Bethel here, as it was earlier in this chapter. But either way, as Jacob denotes, this is God's house. What a great moment. Another spiritual high. But you know... (laughs) You know how Genesis is, yeah? Let's continue. 16. They traveled from Bethel, and there was still some distance to come to Ephrath, and Rachel gave birth. She had hard labor. And when she was in hard labor, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for this one also is a son for you. As her life was departing, for she died, she named him Benoni. But his father renamed him Benjamin. Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, the same as the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Of course, in that day. So once they leave Bethel, Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, goes into labor and dies. Yet again, we go from this mountaintop experience of of Jacob encountering God to an immediate valley. This is the third burial, and perhaps for Jacob, the most difficult burial. But before the death, Jacob gets another son, the 12th, who will cap off the 12 tribes of Israel. But you see what happens. There's another renaming that happens. Rachel, before she dies, names the the son Benoni, and Benoni means something like son of sorrow. So Jacob, not wanting to I guess, relive the sorrow of Rachel's death every time he looks at this kid, he renames him. He renames him Benjamin, which means son of the right hand, my right hand man, my right hand son. It's probably a reference to to the youngest son, right? He's the youngest one. He's at home. He's at dad's side, his right hand. Notice that we're not told that Rachel is buried under a tree. It's kind of interesting. He does set up a pillar on her grave, and it becomes a sacred site, but what's really noticeable is that unlike how Abraham did with his deceased deceased wife, Jacob doesn't bury her in the family tomb, the cave at Machpelah. This was his favorite wife, Jacob's. Later, right near the end of Genesis, however, we learn that Leah, which the text earlier, a few chapters back, said was the wife that Jacob hated or despised. We find out that she is buried in the family tomb, the cave at Machpelah. So there seems to be a a twist of fate here. It could be that Rachel wasn't buried in the family tomb because she died during childbirth, which would have maybe rendered her unclean. 
If that's the case, then perhaps that's why Leah did get that spot. Or maybe it's because Leah actually was the first wife. Either way, it's not what we would have expected given Jacob's love for Rachel and his disdain for Leah. But I trust you're seeing now that Jacob's life isn't all that different from ours, right? I mean, it's full of ups and downs, isn't it? Twists and turns, peaks and valleys. And if we hope to pull any meaning out of life, it'll come from us being intentional about how we live and act in the midst of life's pushes and pulls, life's roller coaster. We must be intentional. People will come and go in our lives. They may make our lives easy. They may make our lives difficult. Events will come and go. They may wound us or hurt us. Things may damage us. Words may cut us to the core. Disappointment may hit us hard. Depression may smack us in the face. Right? Even in churches, people may disappoint us. As a pastor, I sometimes get to see the best of people, but sometimes the worst. You know, recently I heard through a mass letter that someone was leaving the bridge. And then a few days later, I met with a family who wanted to join the bridge. And that same night after I met with them, I got a text that a family was moving, relocating from the bridge. Ups and downs. It's tough. Sometimes it's enough to, as a pastor, just make you start questioning yourself. Start questioning God. Start questioning the people around you. Start questioning everything. But really, it all comes back to, am I living with purpose, on purpose? Am I being intentional? You know, earlier I shared with you a portion of Roosevelt's speech. Here's another bit of it. He said, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the, the one who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there's no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. That's a powerful statement. In short, live intentionally. Live intentional. On purpose, with purpose. Let's keep reading. We pick up with verse 21. Notice, by the way, that Jacob is now going to be called Israel again. All right? Just as Abraham became, or just as Abram became Abraham and Sarai became Sarah, Jacob is now, for good, Israel. 21. Israel traveled and spread his tent beyond the tower of Eder. And while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant. Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. So ironic. Jacob came to Isaac, his father, to Mamre, 
to Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, where Abram and Isaac had sojourned. The days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days. Esau and Jacob, his, his sons, buried him. So Jacob has arrived at home finally. It took a long time to get here. He had to plow through a lot of heartache. And what happens first? He's finally home. Something awful. His son Reuben laid with his dad's wife and concubine Bilhah. In short, he shames his dad. Shames Bilhah. Shames the family by committing both adultery and incest. I mean, it's like, couldn't things just be good for a moment? It's been more than two decades, and the minute Jacob gets back home, it's trouble. And we don't get a lot here, but we get more on this later, and frankly, it's not going to bode well for Reuben. And after the note about that, we get a name list, a brief sort of genealogy. Why, though? Why a genealogy, and why here? Well, it's going to set up what follows, and it reminds us of the promise of nations descending through Jacob. More on that in the future, too. But the story ends with the death of Isaac. He was 180 years old. It's the fourth burial. We don't get many details, but the way the story is told, it's almost as if Isaac was maybe hanging on until Jacob got back. Or maybe he was fine, but when Jacob returned and his kids started creating drama, it was just too much for Isaac. Either way, it's another death and another burial, the fourth burial in this chapter. Death is all around. It's like Jacob can't catch a breather from death. He can't catch a break. God wanted him to return home, and in the process, he's surrounded by death. What a great thing, huh? Might Jacob have been wishing that he'd just stayed back with Laban at this point? Ups and downs yet again. He loses his mother's nurse, who probably took care of him at some point, Deborah. And he loses his favorite wife. And he loses his dad all in one chapter. Perhaps it felt like the ancient version of 2020 for him. But here's what I want you to hang on to. At this point, he doesn't drift. Why? Because he came with intention. And you remember, without intention, we drift. And I want to encourage you yet again to think along those lines. You know, I heard a story about the actor Jim Carrey this week. In 1985, Carrey made a really just kind of interesting decision. He wrote himself a $10 million check. And in the memo, it was for this, acting services rendered. The thing is, he dated it for 10 years ahead in the future, dated it for 1995. And of course, he couldn't cash that. So what did he do? He kept it in his wallet. And wouldn't you know it, in November of 1995, Jim Carrey was cast in the hit movie Dumb and Dumber and made $10 million. Amid the hardship and uncertainty, he didn't drift. He did the opposite. He lived with intention, and that intention gave him hope. And I hope that we'll have the courage to do the same in our own lives and in our lives together. Amen? Amen. Well, if you would, turn your palms upright and receive this benediction. And now, brothers and sisters, may you live intentionally. May you live on purpose, with purpose that you might not drift. Amen, brothers and sisters. Go in peace.